Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julie Yuan Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at University of Helsinki, Finland. Join me today to talk about a new book. It's called People, Place, Race, and Nation in Xinjiang, China, Territories of Identity. Our Debbie O'Brien and Melissa Shani Brown from Ru University Bochum in Germany. But this book is about Xinjiang, and I don't think I need to explain too much to our audience about Xinjiang anymore because it is so visible in the Western media. However, David's book and also Melissa's book is not just about what we heard from the Western media. They have spent a significant time on the ground in Xinjiang and interviewing the Uyghurs, also the Hans, and try to gather a nuanced views perspective on their identities. They have something very interesting, what they call an identity of banal nationalism. So something that is being manifested in their daily life, how the Uyghurs and the Hans look at themselves and their situation. So the book is about that. But of course, I would like the both authors to elaborate further. So welcome, David and uh, Melissa, to Nordic Asia podcast. To begin with, I wonder if you could introduce yourself briefly. Shall we start with Melissa and then move on to David? Well, yes, um, I'm Dr. Melissa Shani Brown. I am broadly speaking a cultural theorist. So a lot of the kind of more conceptual analysis in the book is sort of coming out of my background. But a lot of the sort of ethnographic work, the interviews, the engaging with people, a lot of that was actually done by by David. So the book is very much a, a collaboration between us. Hi, Julie. Yeah, David O'Brien is my name. Um, and uh, I'm at Rohr University Bochum, as you said in your introduction. And I suppose this book dates all the way back to my very early days in China, back in 2003, when I first went to live in Xinjiang. And I lived there for a number of years in the mid 2000s. And before I ever got into academia. I lived there and I was I was working there. And I suppose that sparked my interest in that fascinating region and in what's a very complex and complicated place with very complex identities. And I suppose when I went to think about doing a PhD, I was very drawn to this question of identity in Xinjiang, both Uyghur identity and Han identity. And as Melissa said, much of the ethnographic work, I'm a trained ethnographer, and that's my approach, much of the ethnographic work was done following the terrible riots in uh, Urmici in 2009. So that obviously had a big impact in how we were exploring some of these questions. And um, over the subsequent years, 2009, 10, 11, 12, uh, I did a lot of field work there. And then working with Melissa, who brought uh, a very rigorous uh, scholarly, critical theory approach, uh, we've combined that into what we hope is a, a, a useful and informative book. I think in a way you have answered the question, but I still want to delve further. I just wonder if there's any story behind the scene for making this book happen, because you mentioned you started already quite early, right? And so it's, a, it's really a long project. 
So how does this all happen? It's been a long process and it predates other work that we had done. We've, we've been working together now for a number of years on questions of identity and narrative in particular. The Chinese government's narrative and how it describes its ethnic policy is something that we're both very interested in. I came to this initially as it was initially my PhD, although it's kind of developed on from that uh, quite a lot. Melissa's scholarship is focused particularly on critical theory. Working with her, I think, has allowed us to take the ethnographic work, the, the data, the interviews and all the things that I've gathered over the years and, and use the rigorous kind of critical theory perspective to make uh, what we hope is a, is a contribution. In the book, you have this term, banal nationalism, and also like you know, banalities of everyday life. In a way, I have heard about this term in various kind of academic literature when they talk about identity. And then some people advocate, in fact, we should look at the, the, the daily life, you know, how this is being manifested in daily life. But I just would like to hear your scholarly take on this term and what it specifically means in the context of your study. The term banal nationalism uh, was kind of coined by um, a scholar called Michael Billig. What he was talking about with that is that sometimes when people think about nationalism, they think about often quite big or dramatic things. But his point is that you can sort of trace these identities as much as in very sort of small details. So like um, watching the news um, and seeing the map of a nation in the background. We've kind of taken his idea and adapted it, as many other people have done, to sort of focus on the everyday. And particularly in terms of what the book is trying to do, it's looking at how, if you will, sort of ethnic identities and national identities and the sense of kind of self and other and in-group, out-group divides are kind of very much marked through everyday practices. Things like where people go to eat, who they socialize with, where they feel comfortable or uncomfortable. It's sort of, we are exploring how this kind of small details of everyday life forms this kind of bedrock that much bigger things come out of. Things like either the violence of the riots or now things with the, um, the re-education centers, these kinds of things. So it's kind of stepping back from these sort of things like the riots or the camps that sort of seem very serious and very large, sort of very, sort of very, very serious and looking at things that might seem small, might seem like just a small detail, but it's actually part of the whole situation which creates the wider context for things like ethnic tension, for the, the sort of crucible of the question of what does it mean um, to properly be Chinese or to be of one group or another. I remember in the book, you say that in the West, we often look at China as China has some racial problem. But in your book, you say that this racial thinking does not exist in the Chinese discourse. What well, can you elaborate on that? Well, what we're saying is that um, it's not that it doesn't exist, but that it's often said that it doesn't exist. Um, we mm-hmm. think that it does exist, although, of course, it's articulated in a very particular way. Part of what the book is doing is exploring um, the question of, for example, what do we mean by racism? What, what is racism? And to, to explore that in China, we're drawing on the work of other people who define racism not as sort of prejudgment on how people look, but basically the judgment that identities can be scaled, that some people are better than others, or they're more modern than others, or more civilized than others. The idea that it's scaling of identity that is actually what makes prejudice work. And part of our argument is that um, often in China, it is said that there isn't any racial thinking, there isn't any racism, 
because all Chinese people are basically alike, either in terms of the origins of their cultures um, or in appearance or all of these kinds of things. And part of our argument is that if you think about racism as this hierarchy, then very much that does exist in China. It's part of the definitions of ethnicity, the scaling of, of cultures on this, um, this progression towards modernity. Our argument is that if you draw on these other definitions of what racism is and how it works, then that is to be found in China, kind of challenging the idea that, that it doesn't exist. And I think it's also very important, you know, that we differentiate between official narratives of the Chinese Communist Party uh, and and the people of China, you know, we, we the official narratives of the Chinese Communist Party, I think, very much make the point that racism is something that China has been the victim of. Uh, it's experienced the century of humiliation, much of which uh, had very strong racial and racist elements to it. And of course, that's absolutely true. We don't deny that at all. Certainly, China has experienced very racial views coming from other parts of the world. However, we argue that the state is also engaged in very much a racialist construction of its own population, where it hierarchizes some members of its population as being more loyal, uh, more true citizens, and other citizens as being more troublesome, more potentially dangerous, less ideologically sound, and that much of this is actually based on a, a racial hierarchy that's very familiar that we see in Europe, the United States, so on and so forth. So that's what we're challenging the notion coming from the Communist Party. Less, we don't want to give the impression we're, we're talking about Chinese people in general here. We're exploring the notion originating within the narratives of the CCP. You mentioned this one race, like, uh, you know, so all the people in China, they all seem to be in one race. And of course, the, there is a lot of governmental efforts to make this, what we call the sinicization happens, meaning that making every people becoming more, all like one race, one Chinese. Could you give us some examples, maybe examples from your book, what is happening in Xinjiang in this regard? David or Melissa? <laughs> I, I think, you know, one of the certainly areas where we see it are in so-called expressions of loyalty, cultural expressions of loyalty that we have seen during our research and have been documented by other scholars. Uh, these are public demonstrations of Uyghur loyalty to the state, which also often manifest in performance of cultural, so, you know, dragon dancing, drumming, the performing of Beijing opera, things like that, which are both showing uh, a, a loyalty to the state, a sense that you are a good and, and upright and upstanding member of society, but also very much Han culture, Han originating culture, and this expression that you are a loyal and good member of society by uh, performing the culture uh, of another group in society, I think is very, very striking uh, and has been widely documented uh, and is something that uh, is increasing, I think, when we look at both what's happening in terms of public performances, but also in the media, demonstrations of cultural loyalty is something that's widespread, uh, both in local Xinjiang media and also in national media. How do the locals react to this then? Are there any resistance? What's happening in Xinjiang right now is incredibly tense and the space for resistance is incredibly limited and it's incredibly dangerous for Uyghur people and other ethnic groups to express resistance openly. 
where you certainly see resistance is in how people engage with, talk in private. It was possible to carry out research like this a few years ago. It's not possible to carry out this research now. It is not safe for Uyghur, Uyghur and indeed Han people in the region to talk to foreign scholars, journalists, and so on. And it's it, it's an incredibly dangerous situation right now in Xinjiang. But where you see the resistance, I think, is in, on a very, very private way, for example, uh, using local time uh, rather than using Beijing time, not engaging with some of the narratives, attempting to ignore some aspects, not engaging with the idea that everything is happy and wonderful and perfect when it's so clearly not happy and wonderful and perfect. So very often the resistance is, there is only a very limited space for that. It's quite subtle. It's often in private uh, and it's very, very hard to resist what's happening because of the danger for, for people in doing that. Um, well, I think I mean, well, this goes to the question of what is meant by resistance. I think one thing that came out of a lot of David's interviews was the sense that, as, as he said there, it's, it's often quite a private thing, that it's often a matter of individuals choosing something that they will not change. So something like keeping the local time, something like which restaurants to go to or not, and kind of making that a very small act of resistance, even if it's not something that is going to be picked up on more widely, partly because it would be very dangerous if it was picked up on more widely. So I think there's very little space for resistance, because of course, if it's noticeable, then it could be targeted if you are seen to be potentially making um, a big act of resistance, regardless of uh, what group you are in in China, of course, that could be seen as a criticism of the government, a criticism of government policy. And a lot of people would be concerned about doing that for the repercussions to themselves, to their families, to others around them. So I think the, a lot of the time it's something that is done purposely to be not as visible as it could be. To for our audience who might not be familiar with the time zone issues, maybe uh, you could explain a bit. Uh, what do you mean by keeping the local time? <laughs> Okay, so I mean, China is obviously an enormous country, uh, and even though it is almost exactly the same size as the United States, unlike the United States, which has four time zones in the continental United States, China has one time zone. So if you're in Beijing, time is seven o'clock, but if you're in Kashgar, which is thousands of miles to the west, it's the same time. So obviously, that has a particular impact on when the day begins, when the sun rises, when things open, uh, so on and so forth. It's often in the winter, things begin very much in the dark, and it's a number of hours before the sun rises. Most Han people living in the region use Beijing time. Certainly a significant, if not most Uyghur people, keep local time. So that's the time it is according to the sun. So it can often depend who you're speaking to as to what time of the day it is. And for Uyghur people to use local time is on the one hand, uh, it's more accurate in terms of the sun and, and what it's actually like, you know, with uh, where the sun is in the sky. But it is also a form of resistance, we would argue, to this very heavily state, which is very, very heavily uh, 
impacting on people's lives and on, on the way they think and in, in even within to their most private spaces. So that kind of resistance, which has been for a very long time, this, you know, local time, Xinjiang time is not something that has only recently started to be used. It's it's always been there, but there is a form of, of resistance in that. And it's an exactly an example of, I think, the banal nationalism that Billings describes and that we uh, use as one of our ways of exploring some of these questions in the book. Well, coming back to the Chinese government's approach, and in the Western media, of course, we see a lot of draconian uh, measures, and now scholars call it securitization, uh, meaning that everything is seen in a very security perspective. Uigurs are being depicted as terrorists or as a collective group. Can you give us some examples of how China is securitizing Xinjiang? It's widely documented, the surveillance, the camps that have been set up, um, that possibly well over a million people have been sent to without trial. It's documented and the evidence for that is often coming directly from Chinese government's own uh, material and sources, procurement contracts that have appeared on the internet and so on. And I'm, I'm sure your listeners have, have read about this and seen this. You know, the Chinese government initially denied the camps existed, but after the evidence became overwhelming, they changed their position and said, no, the, these camps are actually a beneficial thing. They're important to help people develop and to achieve jobs and to achieve modernity. And I think in that sense of achieving modernity, you see the securitization of an identity, the sense that people are less developed, they are backward, they need to be brought into the future, brought into modernity. And if they're not brought into modernity, they're dangerous. And they're dangerous. That danger is something that needs to be removed from society. And the idea that one entire ethnic group could be dangerous because they are considered to be less developed and backward has, in in our view, very strong racial elements to it. The narrative is basing uh, a security risk on your ethnicity. You are more of a risk because of your ethnic group. Therefore, these incredibly draconian policies have been introduced to protect other members of society from the risk that you allegedly bring to them. So, you know, that's kind of a a major part of what we're trying to explore, how that narrative has developed, how people engage with that, how some of that has internalized uh, by and of much of our interviews, it's important to stress we we interviewed people from many many different ethnic groups, and we're we're as interested in what Han people have to say about what's going on uh, as what Uyghur people have to say. Uh, and so the internalizing of government narratives into how people think about their neighbors themselves uh, is a big part of what we're trying to explore. Characterizing of Islam as something backward and dangerous is, of course, something that you see far far beyond China, particularly since September 11th. So it's not like this is a unique thing. Um, It's part of a much broader pattern. But uh, we're sort of situating our work with other scholars who would say Islamophobia is a type of racism, but one based on prejudgments of a particular religious group, a particular religious and cultural tradition. And I think you can very much see that around the anxieties in in China around both terrorism and separatism and the idea that particular ethnic groups pose this risk because they are different. And that difference means that they are presumed to be more likely to be separatists, to be terrorists. And the two groups, the two things are kind of indifferentiated, that separatism and terrorism must surely be exactly the same thing. They become synonymous for each other. But yeah, I think it is part of a a much broader pattern across the world around 
um, sort of seeing Islam as inherently threatening, threatening to modernity, threatening to um, modern civilized societies. So I don't think it's it is a unique thing there. But of course, one thing that is striking with China is the scale on which they have been doing this, and that's what um, other scholars as well have been saying. It's like it's not that the Islamophobia is somehow not to be found in the West or in many other contexts more broadly. Certainly the way that China is responding to its fears of terrorism, its fears of separatism is extremely Iranian. For our audience, I just want to kind of repeat again the book that we are talking about called People, Place, Race and Nation in Xinjiang, China. Territories of Identity, and it is just published this year. And we are now talking with uh, David O'Brien and Melissa Brown about their book. So perhaps you could sum up the key messages that you wish to bring. I think what we've tried to do with this book is explore the question that many people ask when they look at what is happening in Xinjiang now. And that is, why are the Chinese government doing this? Why are they reacting in this extraordinary, with this extraordinary level of draconian surveillance, internment, turning the whole region into essentially an open air prison? And that is a prison which impacts on everybody's life. You know, Han people are impacted in this as well. And it's very, very important uh, that we explore the region uh, as a region where people of many different ethnicities, backgrounds and traditions and cultures live uh, and how it impacts on Han people is a very, very important question uh, as well. So the book, I mean, if we were to sum it up, what the book is attempting to do is to explore, first of all, how this narrative has developed, how the Chinese government justify what they're doing, uh, but how people have reacted to that, how they've internalized it, how their daily lives are impacted by this. We also need to really stress the point that, you know, Xinjiang has received enormous amount of focus since 2017 because of the camps and the various other well-documented things that are happening there. But there's nothing new about this. This view of the Uyghur, this official state view of the Uyghur as a, a backward ethnicity that needed uh, to develop and become more modern dates way, way, way back. And that way of viewing people and how that state view of people impacts on people's daily lives uh, in the, the banal, normal, everyday experiences of their daily lives is something that we are attempting to explore in the book. Thank you, David and Melissa, for sharing your insights with us. You have been listening to Nordic Asia podcast with me, Julie Yuan Chen, Shani Brown, and Debbie O'Brien. They are now both working in Ruud University Bochum in Germany. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.